Thank you for joining us for Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that tackles tough topics, but sometimes we tackle not-so-tough topics, and I think that that's what we're talking about today. Our guest has been with us before, Casey. Casey Gwynn, welcome to the show. Thanks, Heather. Nice to be with you. Thank you for coming again. Casey, you're coming here not to talk about a particular um, domestic violence issue or uh, camp or anything like that today. Today, of course, we'll, we'll touch those topics, I'm sure. But what we're talking about is a new book that you came out with. And, and what fascinates me about this book is because it's about hope. Let me, first of all, uh, tell people about your creds. You were a former San Diego City attorney who helped found, uh, well, you worked with the Abuse Domestic Violence Unit there for many years, and then you helped found uh, a task force against domestic violence. And Well, you tell it. You know it better than me. So where did you go from there? <laughs> well, it's an, it's an honor to be with you. And, yes, it's been quite a journey. I began my career as a prosecutor in San Diego. I prosecuted child abuse child abuse and domestic violence cases for 10 years. Uh, in 1996, I ran for and was elected as the city attorney of San Diego and took over an office of 350 professionals, including 150 lawyers. And it was during that journey as the elected city attorney that I really got the opportunity to pursue my passion, which had been for years trying to create a center where survivors, both adults and children, could come one place for everything they needed, whether it was related to domestic violence or sexual assault or human trafficking um, or child abuse uh, related issues or uh, even uh, issues around elder abuse. And that led to the creation of the San Diego Family Justice Center. And we opened in 2002 thought it had nothing to do with the rest of the country or the rest of the world until Oprah Winfrey uh, profiled it in January of 03. I was on Oprah for two days on the national broadcast, and Oprah gave us a real platform to talk about what it would mean for survivors to be able to come one place. So that kind of changed our world. And then uh, President George uh, W. Bush created a federal initiative and asked me to provide leadership to that initiative to begin creating more centers and figure out what it looked like in places like New York or in a tribal community or in a rural community as opposed to a place like San Diego. So that's been the journey. Uh, I left office as the city attorney in 2004 and became uh, the president of what is now Alliance for Hope International. And then our, uh, our former director of the Family Justice Center, Gail Strack, uh, became our CEO in 2007. And we now have centers in 40 states and 25 countries and during that journey, we've just watched it continue to grow and expand. And our work has now really begun to focus on outcomes. What are we really about in all this? We know we're about safety for survivors. We know we want to be about accountability for offenders. But uh, this new book, Hope Rising, is really uh, a focus on hope. And we have become convinced that our greatest calling is to give hope to people and that hope is more predictive of well-being in the life of a trauma survivor than anything else. High hope people do better out of trauma. Higher hope people do better in cancer. Higher hope people do better out of the death of a loved one. Kids with higher hope scores do better in school than kids with lower hope scores. And I didn't even know five years ago you could measure hope in a human being. And now it's, uh, now it's the passion of my life, not only to measure it, to figure out how to cultivate it, to figure out how to turn hope into a verb 
and really be able to teach people how to navigate their way to higher hope in their life. Okay, that sounds very noble and very, very wonderful, but let's back up a little bit. What What is hope? I mean, I've talked to people who are facing or who have faced trauma or who are continuing to face trauma. Um, sometimes they're in denial. Sometimes they just sink with it. Sometimes they just assume this is the end and it's done with. Sometimes, I, What is hope? How do you define it? Well, we use that word in a lot of ways. Uh, it's uh, cloudy and cold in San Diego today. So I could say, I hope it will be sunny tomorrow. Uh, that's not hope, though, because I have no control over the weather. That's probably more like wishful thinking. Uh, so we use the we use the word in a, in a kind of a way that doesn't really get to the meaning uh, at times. Many of us also think hope is kind of an emotion. You know, it's more like optimism or you know, I hope things work out or I hope I figure out my pathway forward in life. And what we have done in this book, Hope Rising: uh, How the Science of Hope Can Change Your Life, is we have. Uh, really gone deep into the research on hope. And I didn't uh, invent it. I didn't create the research. There was an amazing researcher at the University of Kansas in the 1990s named Rick Snyder who started validating the first scales to measure hope in adults and in children. Uh, Rick did that work until he passed away in 2006 uh, from cancer. Uh, and uh, about that same time, uh, a researcher at the University of Oklahoma, whose name is Dr. Chan Hellman, began starting to research hope using Rick Snyder's scales and looking at it in domestic violence shelters and child abuse programs. Uh, I didn't know about any of that. Here we were opening family justice centers. We were beginning to do uh, more and more work with kids. We had started a camp called Camp Hope America, but we certainly weren't measuring hope in anything we did. And in 2012, Chan Hellman said, Casey, hope is measurable and hope has a definition. Hope is the belief that your future can be brighter than your past and that you play a role in making that happen by the goals you set, by the willpower you have, and the way power you have, the ability to think strategically about how to overcome barriers. And he said, and you can measure all those things. And I remember hearing Chan talk on a call that we were on in 2012 and thinking, you can't measure hope. That's a, that's a ridiculous concept. Hope is something that, you know, Emily Dickinson talked about it. You know, it's kind of something you can't really measure. It's that, that internal feeling that people have. And Chan said, no, nope, it is a feeling, but it's also a science and we can measure it. And so in 2013, uh, Dr. Chan Hellman uh, started measuring hope in our camping program. Then in 2015, he started measuring the family justice centers. And now he's leading a national research team uh, for us. And during those years, we figured out that that definition of hope, that hope is the belief that your future can be brighter than your past and that you play a role in making it so, has elements to it. You can measure goal setting in a person's life. You can measure what's called willpower or sometimes called agency, which is the motivation to pursue goals in a person's life. Very similar, by the way, to Maslow's hierarchy when Maslow talked about the importance of agency 65 years ago when he created his hierarchy of social needs in, in victims of violence and abuse and trauma. He talked about the importance of agency, which is the motivation to move forward in life. And then you can measure way power. 
the, the strategic thinking of a person to overcome obstacles when they want to pursue goals in their life. So that's been the journey, and now we are measuring it. So when we started researching for this book three years ago, uh, Chan said, I'm going to have my graduate students at the University of Oklahoma do a comprehensive literature review, and they found 2,000 studies where hope has been measured since the mid-1990s. So this is not something we invented. It's not something that we made up uh, out of nothing. Uh, it's been evolving uh, to the point that while it was writing Hope Rising, we found out that Gallup has been measuring hope for almost 10 years in high school students, uh, actually grade five and up all over America. They have something called the Gallup Student Poll, and they have figured out that hope is more predictive of academic success than any other measurement in a child's life, whether they're trauma survivors or not. So that's really been the journey, is understanding that it's something you can teach, something you can measure, and it's not just an emotion. Okay. So how, you know, I mean, is do we all have this? Does everybody have this until something bad happens and then we don't have it? The fundamental principle of our research in our book is that we're all born with hope. Human beings are, of all creatures on the planet, hope-centered um, animals. We are uh, born with hope. And babies can't articulate their needs or, or their goals. Uh, babies aren't able to say, uh, this is what I want or this is what uh, I want to do with my life. But anybody that's had a baby and anybody that's got kids or grandkids knows that babies have goals, children have goals. And if their needs are met, their goals slash needs are met, they do really well in life. And if their needs aren't met, they don't do so well. So we do believe that it's the essence of being human. Hope is the essence of being human. We're future-oriented from birth. We're goal-oriented from birth. Uh, and what happens in the journey of life is we get robbed of hope. Vicarious trauma, direct trauma, illness, disease, adversity, pain, uh, poverty, uh, abuse, they're all things that rob us of hope, and children always get robbed first. And children mm. that get robbed first uh, suffer the consequences, battle the consequences of that, often through childhood and into adulthood. And when I first wrote a book on the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, or known as the ACEs Study, uh, in 2015, that was really my first effort to understand the relationship between childhood trauma, what happens to us growing up from, from in utero development to early weeks of life to zero to five to uh, through our kind of adolescent years, what happens in those years has so much significance later in life that unmitigated trauma can create so many challenges for us in our journey of life. And I finally started to realize it connected to this very notion of hope in 2015. So Cheering for the Children was a book I wrote in 2015 that was just beginning to see the relationship between childhood trauma uh, and hope. And then Hope Rising now has just, uh, it's the most intimate book we've ever written because Chan and I not only wrote a book about the research on hope and what we can learn from it, but we both told our own stories because both of us have significant childhood trauma histories. And Chan had never told his story ever. He's a tenured professor at the University of Oklahoma. 
Chan is the director of the Hope Research Center at the University of Oklahoma, the leading research program in the country on hope. And he himself had never told his own story of being robbed of hope as a child. And so Chan decided, it was really courageous, he decided to tell his entire story uh, in Hope Rising. And he inspired me to tell some truth about my own life that I had never told anybody, including my wife, of things that happened to me as a child. And so uh, we come to this from a place of openness and transparency, a couple of old guys who are now grandfathers um, who wished that we'd understood trauma and its relationship to hope a long time ago in our lives. But now our goal is to help other people understand it and really realize how significant it is. I never knew you could measure it. Now we're calling for it to be measured. Every employer should be measuring it. Every school should be measuring it. Uh, if you're working with trauma survivors or if you're a trauma survivor, you should be measuring hope in your own life because higher hope people do better in life than lower hope people. And hope is cultivatable, it's malleable, it's measurable, and we should focus there. Uh, in fact, we make a bold statement in Hope Rising. We say that hope is more predictive of well-being uh, for trauma survivors than any other measurement that exists, more than resiliency, more than gratitude, more than optimism. Uh, if hope goes up in somebody's life, resiliency always goes up. But resiliency can go up without hope going up. Gratitude can rise, but hope may or may not go up in somebody's life. But if hope goes up, gratitude always goes up. So it's been really transformative, life-changing for me in many ways. And Chan's the researcher. Uh, I'm really more of the uh, trench worker and the storyteller. But together, it's been a great honor to work with Chan and to write this book and now uh, release it to the public. Okay. All right. I want to back up a little bit because we're talking about all these different types of trauma. Okay. We're talking about, you know, every infant having hope uh, innately. Um, and then because of the things that happen to us, the hope goes away. Um, is it inevitable that things are going to happen to us? I mean, I would assume so. I mean, there's, you know, without necessarily having any extraordinary uh uh, abuse or trauma in your life, there's still trauma. I know when I was interviewing Dr. Vincent Politti, who came out with the ACEs study, um, he included like death of grandparents and, you know, uh, things like that. Well, that's going to happen to all of us. So are you saying that just as we go through life, it's inevitable that we will experience trauma and thus threaten our, our, our hope? Yes. Yes. Everybody does battle with adversity, illness, disease. Uh, it's not necessarily related to childhood trauma. My daughter just went through uh, a really difficult journey with a rare form of lymphoma called gray zone lymphoma. Uh, and for two years, uh, she has fought for her life. She's alive by the grace of God today. She's alive. Uh, she is in remission. Um, she's actually pregnant uh, with her first child, which is stunning because they told her she was not likely going to be able to be pregnant after six months of hospital-based chemo to battle the disease. But she is, and um, we even told her story. She even wrote a chapter in the book about her, only, her own journey through hope and its relationship to nutrition and its relationship to the battle with what happened to her, which was a very compromised immune system from a parasite she had for a number of years in her body. That's what Stanford thinks probably led to the cancer. But that was quite an assault on hope on all of us. 
I certainly struggled deeply in that journey with trying to advocate for my daughter, try to keep her alive, support her, encourage her. So hope is not linear. Uh, and no, nobody grows up high hope and always stays high hope. It can vary by day at times, depending on things we're dealing with in our lives. It can certainly be assaulted. People that stay functional and healthy, even if they aren't articulating it this way, are constantly restoring hope to their life. They're constantly finding ways to increase hope, even if they may not be calling it that or measuring it that. And so the, the whole notion that we are hope-centered beings that have to spend our lives be, being able to restore hope to ourselves and the fundamental principle that Brene Brown shared in another context in one of her books, you cannot give what you do not have. So if you don't have high hope in your life, it's really hard to be a hope giver to others. Uh, if you've been robbed of hope and you end up despairing, depressed, bitter, angry, uh, it's unlikely that you're going to be much of a hope giver uh, to others. It's very interesting. In, uh, late in her life, Mother Teresa was asked kind of what the calling was of human beings, and she said, uh, we must give hope, always hope. And that, to me, is the clarion call of our book, is a healthy life is about hope. Uh, nobody gets out of this life without pain and struggle and difficulty, so we're constantly needing to be about the business of how do I protect hope in my life? How do I stay oriented uh, toward goals and uh, goals that have to do with a couple of things. We always talk about, we define hope in our camping world as hope is believing in yourself, believing in others, and believing in your dreams. And we actually share our research around, you can measure all those things. So believing in yourself is a really important piece. But if you spend all your time only believing in yourself, uh, you become a narcissist. Uh, you become a self-centered me, 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 me. Uh, and so hope has to be this balance between believing in yourself and then believing in others because we're so much healthier in life when we help others, serve others, even in our own pain when we reach out to uh, be an encouragement to others. So hope is believing in yourself, believing in others, and then it's believing in your dreams, which is the key piece of hope is a future orientation. What can my life be? Who can I be in the future? How can I... Uh, come through the things that have happened to me and cause those things to be able to help me to become a better person, a more, a more successful person, a more caring person. Hope is future-oriented. So resiliency is, which and Vince talks a lot about resiliency now in the ACEs world, resiliency is bouncing back from the bad things that happen to you. But hope is going forward to a brighter place in your life and to a healthier place in your life. Resiliency is the bounce back Hope is forward-looking. Um, so that's the okay. that's the exciting I want to interrupt you here, though, because I had a, I I want to interrupt you here because I had uh, resiliency down on on my paper to ask you about. And resiliency, you know, I know there's a lot of research into that, but some people seem to have it and some people don't. Um, is that your your the premise of of what you've been talking about right now is that we can build hope, we can train people to have hope, we can teach it. Um, can we also then train them and teach them to have the resiliency, or is that something innate? I think it's both. I think resiliency sometimes is innate. Some people just bounce back better from things that happen to them and other, than other people do. Um, the resiliency research to me is not as impressive as everybody seems to claim it is. When you look at the validated resiliency scales and you measure them against our validated hope scales, and we've got a piece of research we just uh, produced that's pending publication right now, 
where we measured hope and resiliency and well-being and ACEs in almost 700 attendees of our big International Family Justice Center conference this last April. And it's fascinating. Um, when Chan finished all the research and they looked at the meta-analysis and gave us the, the feedback, when someone has a significant ACE score, it's very clear that that can be mitigated uh, by hope and resiliency. But when you look at somebody's hope score versus a resiliency score using a validated resiliency scale, hope is more predictive of well-being than resiliency. So if resiliency rises because protective factors are increased in somebody's life, people come around them to support them and encourage them, resiliency can go up, but hope may not necessarily go up. But when hope goes up, resiliency always goes up. So hope is the driver. Uh, Chan refers to it by saying this. He says, hope is the mindset that drives resilient behavior. So the word resiliency gets thrown around a lot right now. And sometimes people talk about resiliency and then they talk about goal setting in their life. But goal setting and resiliency are not the same thing. Resiliency is this bounce back ability of people to overcome difficulty. Hope is going forward. So when even people say, well, they're, they're, they've increased resiliency in their life because they're now setting goals for their future. They're confusing two things in the research. Goal setting for the future is hope. That's Rick Snyder's research, it's Shane Lopez's research, it's the research of Gallup. It's future in orientation and it's about goal setting and goal achievement. Resiliency is about bouncing back. So it's been a very interesting journey and we've blogged on it now and we're putting our material out there to the ACES community and others saying, it's great to talk about resiliency, but you really need to focus on hope because resiliency is sometimes very hard to teach to somebody uh, we're teaching seven-year-olds about hope right now in our camping and mentoring programs. You can teach kids about hope. It's much harder to teach them about resiliency. I would think, I, I know, you know, as you're speaking, and of course I haven't studied this scientifically, but I just know anecdotally from, you know, the people that I've been exposed to in my life, some people, um, my, my kids always said about one friend of mine, some, she's just an Eeyore, you know, from the, you know, she's just Eeyore. Everything is, uh, da, da, you know, um, yeah, it, and, uh, you know, some people are Eeyores and some people are Christopher Robbins. And mm. I'm thinking that the resiliency people are, are more Christopher Robin than Eeyore. But is that because I don't truly understand what you're saying? I mean, is, is it, is it tied in with that? Uh, appearance of hopelessness, the the Eeyore thing, like everything is bad and everything will always be bad. And because I know some people who have that kind of an attitude who seem to lead lives. Well, it doesn't mean you can't live if you're if you live with a low hope score. Tons of people live with relatively low hope scores. Uh, we measure it in our staff now. I have employees that work at Alliance for Hope International that don't have very high hope scores, and we work hard with them to find ways to set goals. But there's a lot of people that have been robbed of hope and that live in a fairly negative place. Uh, one of the things we did in the lit review that is in the book is we created a continuum called the hope continuum. And you see at the top of the continuum hope, which is when you have goals, you have the motivation to pursue goals in your life, little or big, whatever the goals are. Um, and you have the strategic thinking to achieve them. That's hope. And the closest thing to hope in our continuum is anger, frustration, and rage. 
So when you have goals and you can't get to them, you get frustrated and angry. It's like kids growing up in an abusive home. They want their family to be a certain way. They want their dad or mom to be a certain way. And when, they, when they're experiencing violence and abuse instead, it creates a low-grade anger that eventually grows into a rage for some of those kids. And rage is not a bad thing. Anger is not a bad thing. They're, they're natural, normal human emotions when you have goals and you can't achieve them. But as you start to lose your ability to re-goal or to find a way to your goals, you slip into the next piece of the continuum, which is despair. So you have hope at the top, then rage, anger, frustration, then despair. And at the bottom of the continuum, the opposite of hope, you've lost all motivation to pursue goals. You've lost all the ability to see that things can change in your situation or your life. The opposite of hope is not hopelessness. The opposite of hope is apathy. When you get to the point where you say nothing's ever going to change, I can't, I can't change anything, I can't do anything, or a teenager says, I don't give a, about anything anymore, that's apathy. And we, we're measuring it now. Kids come into our camping and mentoring program with high trauma scores from childhood, high ACE scores, and it's no great surprise that they have low hope scores. And we see that apathy. Nothing's ever going to change. I can't change my father. I can't change my life. I can't do anything. That's low hope. Because if you have breath, you can change things no matter what the challenges you face. And so the goal in our work is how do you increase hope? And you don't take somebody from apathy back to hope really fast. It's a slow journey, whether you're working at, in a mental health setting, whether you're working in a domestic violence shelter or child welfare program, or you're working with uh, people in a spiritual setting. It's a slow journey to rebuild hope in the life of somebody who has lost hope. And so that's, uh, that's something that our research is now clearly proving. Uh, it's, the, the book is worth the read because it's the first book we've ever written that's totally, completely authentic and transparent about our own struggle with hope. And it, we have so many survivor stories in the book. We got to interview these amazing people, men, women, children, teens, who all uh, put their stories in the book. And virtually every one of them wanted their real name used because they don't want the shame and blame uh, to be attached to this anymore. It's okay to say I struggle with low hope in my life. It's okay to say I've been buffered by a, by a lot of things, but I've also been damaged and robbed of hope by a lot of things, and this is my story. And Vince found that in the ACE study. There's a lot of catharsis that goes on, just being able to tell your story of what you've been through and having people care and come around you and support you. But then the next step forward has to be what goals can I set? And you don't start with usually big ones. You know, when I was a prosecutor, I'd have some rage-filled 10-year-old boy in my office. His mom had been beaten and his dad was in jail. And I would turn to that boy, maybe an African-American or a Latino boy, and say, you should go to college. That was a stupid statement by me because he didn't have a pathway to college. For starters, he's in the middle of trauma and shock and violence. He's frustrated. He's angry. He's got that churning inside him because he doesn't have high hope in his life. He doesn't have a pathway to college. First, we've got to meet him where he is. We've got to get him through what we call the survival window in the book, which is where you're in the middle of that trauma and you, you can't find hope. It's hard to find hope at that moment and set goals. But then we got to start getting him slowly moving forward. We shared our research in the book about Camp Hope America and our wraparound mentoring program we're doing now with kids with high ACE scores, average ACE scores of almost six. 
uh, in our year-round mentoring program uh, with Camp Hope. And 100% of our kids that are graduating from that program are going to college. They're not going to juvenile hall. They're not going to jail or prison. They're going to college because we're helping them find a pathway to hope because hope mitigates trauma. Hope buffers adversity and hope gives kids a set of goals to go forward in life. So when programs work well anywhere in America, they are increasing hope. That's what they do now. That's what every trauma program that has positive outcomes is doing. They're increasing hope. They're just not measuring it. And I guess the real message of our book is you can measure it and you should be measuring it because if you're not increasing hope, uh, your outcomes won't be good in your programs. They just won't. We're all about hope. Mother Teresa was right. We need to be about hope. Okay. One of the, the things that we're all about uh, in our culture right now and have been for probably a, an entire generation is confidence. I used to teach college classes and my, I, I would stand at the board on the first day of class, first session, and I would say, I'd write the word confidence on the board. And I'd say, how important is this? And oh my gosh, this was crucial in life. You have to have this. This is absolutely, you know, this is more important than, you know, oxygen and water. And then I'd write the word competence, and I'd say, how important is this? Well, kind of, you know. I have this bugaboo about being confident based on nothing. But yet I hear you say that hope means that you have to, um, at least what I'm hearing is that you have to have confidence in yourself. Is there a, a tipping point in that? I mean, is there a way, because I know a lot of these people who believe that confidence is 100% important have experienced trauma, and I'm thinking that they are focusing on kind of like trying to pump up their confidence and thinking that that's going to be the answer. Do you understand what I'm asking, and how does that fit into the research that you've done? I, I'm with you. I think both, both of those things are in the heart of hope competence and confidence. If confidence has no competence, uh, you're just deceiving yourself. So when I was growing up, I wanted to be an NBA basketball player. Um, it turned out I was 5'10 uh, and I couldn't jump and uh, was not that great a basketball player. I was very confident in my basketball abilities. I just wasn't good enough to play even at the NCAA level. When I got there, it was like, I am out of my league here. I could be as confident as I wanted to be, but I, I wasn't competent enough or skilled enough or gifted enough to be a, a college basketball player, let alone an NBA basketball player. However, the confidence I had in pursuing that goal uh, was something that drove me. It made me do better in school because I wanted to get a scholarship when I got to college. That, that confidence and people cheering for me and believing in me clearly increased hope in my life. Even in growing up in a home with trauma and abuse and a bipolar father with major mental health issues, uh, that was still important for me. And confidence or what we call agency, which is kind of willpower in life or a view of yourself that, mo that can motivate you forward, it, it always relates to other people. So very rarely is confidence all by itself. Oh, I'm just great at everything. I can do anything I want to do. Um, it's great to have people believe in you, but part of hope is realism. Because if I just say confidence is everything and I'm going to be an NBA basketball player, that's called wishful thinking. That's not hope. Uh, and mm -hmm. because hope has both goals and real pathways. I didn't have a real pathway to get to the NBA. So I had to re-goal. 
part of learning how to apply hope in your life is if I have a goal that I can't get to, uh, what other goal can I set? And I set a goal of being a lawyer, and that was a goal that I could pursue. I was smart. I was articulate. I was a hard worker. I loved to argue, and I could figure out how to get to that goal. So I'm with you. I think both those things are important. I think confidence all by itself is probably more uh, arrogance uh, or wishful thinking than it really is a rational kind of view of your future. And when we talk to kids about hope, we're teaching them both about goal setting, that they're motivated to pursue. That, that's the, the interesting thing about goal setting is if people are imposing goals upon you, that's rarely going to have positive outcomes. You've got to be motivated to pursue your goals. One of our criticisms in the book of the criminal justice system is one of the reasons the criminal justice system often fails is it's a negative goaling system. Don't do this anymore. Don't do that. Don't do this. Stop doing this. Negative goals come from low hope. So you're taking low hope people that have been robbed of hope and have chosen to hurt others, and then you're imposing negative goals upon them externally that they're not motivated to pursue. That's not going to produce success very often. We, if the goal is to a batterer, for example, don't hit a woman again, that's a negative goal. It's unlikely that that goal is going to be very successful unless he has positive goals in his life that we can nurture. Let's learn how to respect and honor women and girls. Let's treat others as equals. Let's focus on that instead of don't, don't, don't. It's like don't think about the pink elephant. Don't think about the pink elephant. Don't think about the pink elephant. You're always going to think about the pink elephant uh, instead of let's focus on a positive goal. So uh, I, I'm with you on all of that, and I think that the, the, the application of this is bearing itself out. Uh, I think hope is going to win the day uh, in the research. So Gallup just found that your hope score in high school is more predictive of college success than your SAT score. Hope score more predictive of college success than your SAT score. Uh, the only question now how are, they, how is, how are you defining success then? How, how is success being defined in, in the way you're talking about it? Just completing college or? Um... Um, both completing college and your level of accomplishment in college. Yeah, they're looking, at, uh, they're looking at GPA in college and they're looking at completion of college. So, so many kids that get to college from foster home backgrounds or from abusive backgrounds get into college, but they never finish college. And those numbers have been true for about 20 years across the country. And what's happening is they get into college, but they don't have a strong support network around them. They don't have, uh, they don't have ongoing high hope in their life because they don't have what they need to maintain high hope. So uh, yes, uh, college, college completion uh, and a level of achievement in college. So kids getting, the interesting thing in the Gallup research is if you take two kids uh, with the same IQ and one of them has a 10% higher hope score than the other child, the one with the 10% higher hope score will be getting A's in college, but while the one with the lower hope score will be getting B's in college. It's really quite fascinating. Hmm. It, well, and it makes sense. It makes sense. Um, you, you mentioned the word motivation. And I know in, in my life, we're not going to talk about wham, wham, wham for me, but I've had my share of trauma. And... I know that in many cases it would I would have just stopped except I had children. And so mm. I 
did things that I never would have thought I could accomplish or bear because I knew I had to for my children. If that motivation were not there, I, I probably, I mean, I can't envision that I would have uh, continued in, in my life. What part does motiva- motivation play in, in hope? Well, I think motivation really goes to that uh, issue of willpower. So willpower is the level of motivation that you have to stick with a goal or to pursue a goal. So the higher a person's willpower is, whatever is motivating that willpower, maybe it's because you want to do it for your kids. Uh, we just had a woman at uh, one of our weekend retreats, a battered woman who's uh, who's kind of navigating her life forward. And she she did a climbing wall uh, during the retreat weekend while her sons were cheering for her at the bottom of the wall. It was just so inspiring. And when she finished the climbing wall, uh, she said to everyone that was there, I did this for my sons because I want them to to know that you can set goals and accomplish them. And I didn't think I could do it, but I did it for them. And it was like, wow. So her motivation was she wanted her sons to be proud of her. She wanted her sons to know that, that she could overcome the things that they had experienced, that she had experienced. So her kids were part of her motivation or in the language of hope, willpower the ability to stick with that goal. And she said her hands were aching and she thought she was going to, I mean, she was being belayed, so she was totally safe on that climbing wall. But she didn't want to stop. She didn't want to be let back down. She wanted to prove to her kids that she could set that goal and go to the top. And both the boys had already gone to the top of the wall and she was just cheering for them. And then all of a sudden she wanted to put a harness on and try it herself. And she had never done anything like that in her life. So I loved that. I and, and she said afterwards that when she wanted to let go, it was partly she was doing it for sons, and it was partly because there were 50 people at the bottom of the wall cheering for her all at the same time. Everybody was cheering for her to, that she could do it, believing in her. So that, that is motivation. That is the, the piece of, of hope that we call willpower, which is we all do better in life when we have a ton of people supporting us and cheering for us. And a life is a pretty lonely place when everybody around us is negative and you can't do it. And you know, you'll never be able to accomplish that. It's pretty commonsensical that the person that has all that support is going to do better in life than the person without support. Mm-hmm. But I'm not talking about support. Um, I'm talking about if you have no support, but you keep going because of those children that's or because of a strong motivator uh with or without the support um that that's kind of what i'm thinking of and that's a lot harder um because i guess it i guess it's because it's totally selfless so is can hope be selfless or does hope have to be selfish i mean self-centered by by definition and I'm not saying that as a, as a bad thing, I, you know. As many years ago, C.S. Lewis said, you know, the problem in our lives is that we're not, uh, we're, the problem is not that we're too selfish. The problem is that we're not selfish enough, that we don't realize that um, serving others is a gift in and of itself to ourselves and that helping others is a gift unto itself. And so, yes, I do tend to believe that human beings are healthiest when they act in their own self-interest. But often, for me, my own self-interest has been serving others. I, I feel better about life. 
I focused mm-hmm. less on my own battle with depression. I focused less on my own struggles in life uh, when I'm serving others. And I guess in a way you could say that's selfish, but I also know that I'm healthier if I'm thinking about advocating for others, encouraging others, cheering for others than just sitting around saying, oh, it's all about me, 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 and what I can do for myself. So I, mm-hmm. I think I would probably say that it depends on the circumstances, but I tend to think that we all do act in our self-interest. I mean, right now I'm in the middle of a journey to get healthy physically, and I've been living on a ketogenic diet for about 11 months um, after being told that I was pre-diabetic and probably on the edge of a heart attack after going through my daughter's cancer journey. And um, early on in my daughter's cancer journey, my way of dealing with it was uh, emotional eating and drinking, to be honest. And... Uh, I thought that was in my best interest because that's what made me feel good. So I deserve this and this is what I want to do. And I'm going to have that second glass of wine at dinner, or I'm going to have more sugar because sugar pumps me up. And now I'm 11 months into keto and I've lost 25 pounds and I feel great. And I've realized that it's in my best interest uh, to uh, not uh, submit to emotional eating as the way I cope with my pain or frustration or challenges in life. Uh, so I, I do think that, and it, for me, it connected to hope. I needed to set a, a, a series of goals around nutrition and health, and I was not taking care of myself because I was grabbing at whatever I could to feel better as quickly as I possibly could. And when it's all said and done in the long run, I'm going to be a lot healthier getting high fructose corn syrup and glucose out of my body uh, the fructose out of my body than I am uh, living on sugar. And so I, I think it's, it, it, it depends on the situation, but the real message of hope rising is hope is a verb. You can increase hope in your life and you can measure it. And so we even created a website um, called hopescore.com uh, and hopescore.org, and we're letting people uh, track their hope scores over time. So you can, we don't think you should measure it like every day because hope is not linear, but at least measure it probably every six months on our staff and our organization. We now measure it once a year. We take the aggregated de-identified hope score of everybody on our staff. And I can know if you work for us, do your hope scores go up or down when you work for Alliance for Hope International? And our hope scores trend up over the last three years. Not not always everybody. Some people have a death in the family or they have difficulty they're dealing with. But uh, you can measure it. And now we're developing a cultural approach to our organization to say we want to be a culture of hope in this organization. And if we're going to be a culture of hope where people believe in themselves and believe in others and believe in their dreams, we got to know whether or not we're increasing or decreasing hope when you come to work for us. So that's the that's kind of the clarion call of the book is we should all be keeping track of hope in our lives and if we're struggling with it, you can pursue conscious strategies to increase it. I want to go back to the the research a little bit because I had one more question besides the one about motivation, and that is socioeconomics. I I grew up poor and I married a man who grew up wealthy. And I realized at some point during our, our lengthy marriage that there was a big difference between us. Um, I took a little job with a little local paper, and I was talking, we didn't have a lot of money at the time, he was getting started professionally, and I was saying that, gee, I think the editor or the owner could be doing this, this, and this with this paper, she could really be making it something, 
And my husband looked at me and said, well, you should buy it then. And my first reaction was, with what? We are, you know, barely making the grocery money, and you think I can go out and buy a paper? And then all of a sudden I realized, in his world, there would be a way to make that happen. Even if you weren't Mm -hmm. having bundles of money. In his world, and I realized right then, that's the difference between rich people and poor people. Poor people do not see possibilities. Rich people always think there's a possibility. Mm. Does that have anything to do with hope? It's a good question. Uh, we, we've certainly met a lot of people in this journey of writing the book uh, that are poor, that don't have a lot of money, and yet have very high hope in their life. And we've met uh, a lot of folks that have tons of resources who are some of the lowest hope people I've ever seen anywhere. So, yes, uh, money can create options. Money can create possibilities. I think there are probably some rich people that certainly have a higher hope in their life in part because their trust is in their financial resources, and so that's where they kind of find their um, their sense of the future. But I don't know. I, I didn't grow up with much either, and uh, I do think that a hope in my own life from a variety of sources sustained me through a really kind of set of significant set of challenges as a child, and um, hope certainly drove me in many ways growing up even though uh, I got had lots of things that could have robbed me. So I don't think that that's the, the measurement. We, we look at happiness, at a happiness measurement in our book and its relationship to hope. And you can have people that score really high on a happiness measurement that actually have low hope in their life. So they look happy. Uh, and often we saw that when they're the happiest people uh, appear to have like more resources, more options, they can jet off places that poor people cannot. Uh, when they want to get away, but happiness didn't actually relate to hope um, very significantly. Uh, happiness is is much, let's just say it's much it's much more shallow uh, than hope is when it comes to the view of my future and my life. But I, I will say, you know, in Camp Hope, we deal with a lot of kids that are really poor, and a ton of our kids come to camp never imagining that they can go to college because none of their family members have gone to college. They barely know what college is. When they find out that Stanford University costs $70,000 a year, they think there's no way I could ever come up with that kind of money uh, to go to college. And I think of Stanford as an example because I just wrote a letter of recommendation for a young man who's grown up in Camp Hope who is applying to Stanford right now. And he has decided he's going for it. And he's decided that he's figured out the financial aid world and he's figured out that being poor is not an obstacle to go into Stanford because Stanford actually accepts a ton of kids that have no resources at all. And then they have a financial aid plan that if you get into Stanford, they will help you get there. So he's applying and he's going for it. And he's really poor, but he's got a high hope score. He has grown up in Camp Hope. He's really smart. He's very gifted. He's smarter than I am. He just wrote a draft letter of recommendation for me to edit. And I had to look up a couple of <laughs> words that he used in my draft. I didn't even know what the words were. And I went to Stanford and went to UCLA we School should, of Law. We should go back and talk confidence here. <laughs> okay, let's talk about what we can do, solutions. If we don't have, if we go on your website and we take the HOPE scale and we don't have a high hope scale. Is there something we can actually do? Yes, you can teach hope. You can learn hope. So in our camping and mentoring program, we're now teaching hope. 
in family justice centers now across the country, we're measuring hope. And when survivors come in, people that are working with them can first meet them where they are, listen to their whole story, let them talk about what they've gone through, and then you can begin this journey of helping people set goals. We have a whole continuum in the book called Nurturing Hope, and there is a, there is a pathway to nurture hope. The beginning is usually little goals. You start people with little, small goals, very small. We're dealing with a woman right now who's 19 in San Diego. Her parents asked for some help this last week, and she's got deep depression. Um, and, you know, they're trying to get her to go back into college. That's way too big a goal for her uh, with a low hope score in her life and suicidal ideation. And she needs to start really, she's in counseling, you know, she's navigating through the stuff that kind of has robbed her of hope. But she needs to start really small. The goal for today needs to be to get dressed. Uh, the goal for today needs to be to take a walk outside for five minutes. I mean, there's there's this kind of really small goal setting that happens. And then kind of the next piece is beginning to practice with someone who's high hope. So if I set this goal and there's an obstacle to it, how could I get around it? You begin to actually practice strategic thinking with them. And then one of the key pieces in nurturing hope is being able to imagine a different future. Imagination is the heart of, of hope. So if, if you can't imagine being somebody else, you, you're never going to get there. If you can't imagine doing something else in your life, you're never going to get there. If you can't imagine in getting out of this unhealthy relationship and what it would feel like to be in a healthy relationship, it's really tough to ever set that as a goal because you can't, if you can't see it, you can't be it. So this notion of imagining is something we're teaching kids now. We do imagination sessions at camp and kids drink think crazy thoughts and we talk about crazy ideas. Well, I could never do that. I could never become, oh, maybe you could. Let's think about what it feel like. What would it feel like if you were in a situation where you actually had adults around you that cared about you? Well, I don't, I don't have any idea what it would feel like. Well, right now you're at a camp where everybody believes in you. What does that feel like? Well, it feels great. I love being here at camp. Well, what would it be like if your whole life was like that? If you had people around you all the time that are like that. Well, that's not the way my, my father is, or that's not the way my mom is. Yeah, but imagine what it could be like. What would it feel like? It would feel great. It would feel like being a camp. So if you can happen at camp, how can it happen elsewhere in your life? So it's kind of this journey of how you nurture hope back into somebody's life. And uh, we, put, we have a whole set of chapters in the book on how you can measure hope in your life and then how you can, you can create it again. We even shared a program that starts in the fifth grade where kids in schools now are starting to learn hope in a five-week program that's uh, evidence-based, where you teach kids the science, goal-setting, willpower, waypower, and then you start challenging them to look at what gives them hope all around them. Where do they see hope every day in their life? And they start creating murals, or they can do a PowerPoint presentation of pictures, and they can start beginning to imagine what hope is for them and what their life would feel like if they had hope. And sure enough, they just they did it in a school in Lawrence, Kansas, a number of years ago, and they had half the school take this five-week hope course, and half the school didn't. At the end of five weeks, the kids that did the hope the hope course, their hope scores went up, and their well-being went up, their sense of themselves, their sense of their future increased, and the kids that weren't part of it, of course, nothing changed in their lives over those five weeks because they weren't involved in the program. So yes, you can teach hope 
to adults and to okay, children. Okay, wait a minute. I'm going to interrupt again matters. on that that uh, situation that you just talked about, where you test you you trained the kids to for hope, and then you tested them. Did you go back and test them six months later to see if that stuck or if it was just temporary? Um, it it lasted for a year. The research that was originally done by Rick Snyder and Shane Lopez at the University of Kansas they measured for about a year. What we're doing in our camping and mentoring program, and all this research is in the book now, is when we first started measuring hope, uh, we measured it 30 days before camp, 30 days, uh, the last day of camp, and 30 days after camp, and hope went up, and then 30 days later, it went back down again. And what we realized is that a week of camp was really powerful, but kids need things to look forward to all year long, and that's why we created our year-round mentoring program for children exposed to domestic violence, and we have activities every month for them now. And now we have published research that camp is a huge bump, and then all year long we can maintain that increase in their hope score from summer camp all year long if they're involved in activities all year long where there's peer mentoring and there's adult mentoring and they've got things they're setting goals about. So it's a constant journey. No, you don't just change everything with a week of camp or a five-week course. You've got to increase hope, and then you have to have ways to keep it up over the course of time because hope can obviously disappear from people's lives pretty fast if it's not continually being cultivated. Mm-hmm. Now, you've been talking primarily about working with the kids, but has this, does this work with adults? It does. Yeah, we actually just did a whole hope seminar for Family Justice Center directors across America in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, just a few months ago, and walked them through a whole day of hope sessions. Chan and I are now doing workshops all over the country where we take people through our worksheets in the book um, to help them understand how they can increase hope in their life. Uh, We have a published piece of research out of seven California Family Justice Centers where survivors' hope increased in a 90-day period from the day they walked into the Family Justice Center until we stopped measuring, which was 90 days of services. And the whole purpose of it was to challenge the staff in the Family Justice Center to help increase hope in the lives of survivors by teaching them the science and then applying it to their lives. So yes, you can teach it to adults, you can teach it to kids, you can teach it to people that have severe trauma histories, and you can teach it to people that maybe had no trauma history. My wife is a zero on the A scale. I score a five on the A scale. My my (laughs) wife is a zero. Um, It's a terrible thing to say, my wife is a zero, but uh, it doesn't mean she doesn't have issues in her life, of course. That's a good thing. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it doesn't mean she doesn't have issues, though. It just means her issues aren't related to childhood trauma. She grew up in a healthy, functional Mm -hmm. home, no violence, no abuse, two parents that loved her. I laugh every time I say it because it's like, I I don't even imagine that people could do that, grow up in a healthy, functional home. But she did. I know. I um, used to. I used so, to say we should all grow up in the Huxtable household, but I've had to. I've had to drop that one, you know, in recent history because clearly things weren't all as they seemed in the Huxtable household. But, um, but yeah, you know, the idea that that there's a zero on that ACE scale—that's amazing. Stands hope much better now. She she helped edit the book along with Vince Politi and a number of others, and she gets it better. And she is setting different goals in her own life and thinking differently about things. She used to say, "Well, I should do this or I should do that," but it wasn't really she was really wasn't something she was really motivated to pursue because shoulds don't produce high motivation goals in your life. 
If you have something you mm-hmm. really care about, that's where you should focus in your life. If you have something you think somebody else wants you to do, that's probably not going to be a high hope goal for you because it's not something you're personally motivated to pursue. You got to pursue things that you're willing to stick with and that you that you really care about. If I say you should do this or you should do that to somebody, the likelihood of them doing it is not actually all that great unless they're personally yeah. motivated to do those things. Yeah. Casey, we have covered a lot of ground here and I've learned a lot and um I, I really appreciate you sharing the research with us. I'm a big, you know how I, I'm I'm a big person to believe in the research, you know, and I think it teaches us a lot. It shows us a lot, and uh, you've clearly taken that and run with it. So, congratulations on the new book. Please tell people where they can purchase the book. Give us your website for taking the uh, Hope Scale uh, assessment that you were talking about. Well, thank you. Yeah, you can go to HopeScore.com to take your own Hope Score. Uh, If we're working on an account section of that, which is not quite up yet, where people are going to be able to track it year to year, Uh, the book's available on Amazon. You can order it from Barnes & Noble. It's in about 150 bookstores around the country, but it's not everywhere. Um, If you're Michelle Obama, it's pretty easy to get a book out there. If you're uh, Casey (laughs) Gwynn and Chan Hellman, uh, you got to work pretty hard uh, to get it out there. But uh, a lot of people are purchasing it on Amazon. We just had a book signing last night here in San Diego and had about 100 people there, and most of them just bought the book right off of Amazon. Um, it's available for, uh, I think, about $12, um, and it's a, a great investment uh, in your future. So HopeScore.com to measure your Hope Score right now, and probably Amazon's the best place to go to purchase the book. Okay. Hope Rising is the name of the book. and it's Hope by Rising, Casey How Wayne, the Casey Science Hill. of Hope Can Change Your Life. Okay. Okay. You corrected me. Okay. I didn't write down the whole thing, but I think you could find it by just Googling uh, Hope Rising and Amazon. Thank you, Casey. Once again, it's been a runaway interview. You always just take the reins and go with it, and it's an easy interview for me. So thank you for the work you do, and thank you for coming and sharing it with us on Three Women, Three Ways. And thank you for listening. Join us again next week. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.